If I'm ever looking into a saint, I want to know what makes them tick. What did their contemporaries say about their interactions in everyday life? Did they ever lose their temper? What was their bearing so that I can imitate them in my own life? If you'd like to know that about St. John Bosco, look no further than this video. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. There was once a priest who started as a student and then became a cleric living in the oratory for many years. By his zeal, he preserved many children from the dangers of inexperience. In 1889, he wrote down these recollections of his life with Don Bosco. He wrote, Who was Don Bosco? He was a priest who, by example and word, taught how each of us must faithfully serve the Lord. The Gospel tells us, Whoever carries out and teaches the least of the commandments shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For this reason, one can and must rightly consider Don Bosco as a distinguished man among the most significant characters, not only of the 19th century, but of the entire Christian era. Possessing nothing, he founded such a marvelous institution that fills us with awe. This institution will hold the admiration of the world for centuries to come. God instructed Don Bosco in this great work and will preserve it and fulfill his mysterious purposes. Don Bosco was a mysterious man sent by the Lord to prove how much one can accomplish when fully trusting God. He was a profound judge of people and of his times. He was a man of firm character, tenacious purpose, long and just views, the finest tact in handling people and things, and boundless trust in divine providence. He accomplished everything that he thought up in his vast mind. With general amazement, he fulfilled his plans almost by magic, trusting in these words, Deus prebet, God provides. For him, the term impossible seemed not to even exist. Only the Lord can know all the obstacles Don Bosco faced implementing his plans. For this purpose, God endowed him with a robust temperament and a well-built body, taller than average, strong in physique and moral fiber alike. His moderate pace and simple bearing showed that he was thoughtful and quietly good-natured, never suggesting who he really was. Indeed, his temperament was like that of the farmer's friend, the ox. He seemed to imitate the ox's mildness of character, strength, and constancy in pulling a plow. What stood out the most was Don Bosco's gaze. It was kind indeed, but penetrating to the depths of the heart. Amid so much hustle and bustle of human events, especially adverse events, Don Bosco was always a master of himself. He kept his temperament moderately joyful and playful. Never did I see him lose his self-control. Together, all these attractive qualities made him a likable and admirable character to the point of veneration. Those with the good fortune to be close to him became more than servants. They became slaves to him out of their free will and affection. His humorous manner with his boys eased his way and gave him the vigor to face his most serious and thorny undertakings. He sometimes shook himself, as if shaking off a grave burden, and suddenly vented his feelings with these words, Ah, go as they will, so long as it goes well. 
At other times, when he was burdened by rumors and persecutions against him and his works, he would call whatever young man was nearest to him and he'd say, let's keep smiling and doing good, never mind what people say. He would exclaim to the others, you're my dear little rascals. I'd rather have you than all the comforts of the rich. Don Bosco felt great consolation by being surrounded by his sincerely loving children. Without even knowing it, they nonetheless doled the prickly thorns of life. They sustained and preserved such a happy existence that he could have come to a premature end without their help. He was, however, very wary of letting his soul's anguish and turmoil leak out to his loved ones, despite the many adversities he encountered during his difficult mission. He composed a playful song still lovingly remembered in the oratory to find relief. I see Don Bosco in our midst and still hear him asking, Is Capelli here? Yes, sir, was the answer. Well, shall we sing our song? Let's sing, he instructed. He accompanied us with his kind and gentle voice until the song's end. He sang as if enjoying the beauty of a comforting oasis in a desert. Servite domino in Letizia. Serve the Lord with gladness was his favorite exclamation. For him, this holy cheerfulness formed the basis of his institution for the safe education of youth. Opposed to secrecy and concealment during recreation time, he wanted the young people to exercise themselves by doing gymnastics and by making music. He took part in these pastimes very willingly. He said, I wish to see my young men running and jumping merrily in recreation, for then I'm sure what they're doing. To his colleagues, who were most experienced, Don Bosco entrusted those who were shy, so that the experienced boys might gradually animate them to be cheerful and enjoy themselves. He was fond of music and held choir and band practices after dinner. In the early days of the oratory, he adapted the music from several sacred hymns and composed a simple tantum ergo to be played for solemn feasts. The oratory students and Don Bosco had a holy and continuous mutual affection. This affection was kindled by his examples of so many virtues and gratitude, and the young men's recognition of how Don Bosco, their superior and father, was like one of them because he remained poor voluntarily. Poor in imitation of Jesus, Don Bosco favored the poor and chose his followers from among the children of the common people. Note the reason he gave for not accepting a child to Baron Feliciano Ricci in a letter. He wrote, Dear Baron, I greatly regretted that Rosso arrived here only to be sent home. It's not possible to make room for him at the present time. His mother was dressed so richly that I should ask her for charity. I cannot accept boys whose relatives are dressed in such lavish clothing. The real reason is our lack of space. I hope in your goodness that you will take pity on me if I have not been able to fulfill your charitable wish. Please pray for me. I invoke the Lord's grace upon you and your whole family with genuine gratitude. Signed, Don Giovanni Bosco. The lowliest and neediest boys were Don Bosco's favorites. Among them were some real gems of virtue. Let's mention one in particular, Michael Magione who in his first weeks at the oratory seemed a fiery, untamed cult. By attending the sacraments, however, he became so patient that when he went to Don Bosco for confession, 
Michael would prepare by kneeling on the bare floor, sometimes for four or five hours, letting others go to confession before him. After confession, communion, and the sacred services, he would stand by the altar of the Blessed Sacrament or the altar of the Blessed Virgin, prolonging his prayers. Sometimes his companions would bump into him, trip over his feet, and even step on him as they crowded out of the church. But he seemed not to notice and calmly continued his prayers. During the recreation period, he excelled at every amusement, yet at the first clang of the bell, he ran where his next duty called him. In 1857 and 1858, Michael applied himself so diligently to his studies that he completed both Latin I and II, so that upon his final exam, he was admitted to Latin III. And I took Latin. I know how complicated that is. His progress was due to his most ardent devotion to Our Lady. When asked how he overcame certain difficulties in his daily tasks, he replied, I have recourse to the Blessed Virgin. She tells me everything and puts many things in my mind that I would not have known myself. Over a picture of Mary that he kept in a book, he wrote the words, Virgo parens, studes semper modesto meis, meaning, Virgin Mother, help me always in my studies. And on all his notebooks, papers, and books on his table, he had written with pen or pencil, Sedes sapiensiae, ora pro me, meaning, seat of wisdom, pray for me. To give glory to Mary and her divine son, he learned music and sang with his silvery voice at public and solemn functions. While Don Bosco was in Rome, Michael took part in the spiritual exercises held at Easter for those outside the oratory, crowning them with a general confession. Michael wrote Don Bosco a short letter saying how the Blessed Virgin had made him hear her voice, calling him to be good. He explained that she wanted to teach him how to fear God, love him, and serve him. If you'd like to hear more about Michael, who was probably a saint, just come back Wednesday for another episode about him. In the meantime, you might as well check out this video about how St. John Bosco wrote to Pope Pius IX when he was a prisoner in the Vatican. Thank you all so much for watching. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Whatever you do, think of the glory of God as your main goal. St. John Bosco. That's just some fan art I wanted to show you. Today's episode is part two of our story about Michael Magioni, who I thought was a saint in the oratory. If you haven't seen part one yet, just click on the card that should appear on the screen. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. When Don Bosco was in Turin, Michael Magioni asked him for permission to make his priestly vows, but Don Bosco wouldn't allow him to do so. He wanted Michael to be content for a while by making a simple promise. In that young man, the grace of God inspired a lively desire for perfection. In May 1858, Michael set out to do what he could to honor Mary. He accomplished the mortification of his eyes, tongue, and other senses. He also wanted to deprive himself of part of the recreation period, fast and spend some of each night praying. But these practices were forbidden to him because he was too young. At the end of the month, he presented himself to Don Bosco and told him, if you let me, I want to do something special in honor of the great mother of God. 
I know that St. Aloysius liked Our Lady very much because, from his childhood, he consecrated the virtue of chastity to her. I also want to present this gift to her. Therefore, I wish to make a vow to become a priest and preserve perpetual chastity. Don Bosco replied that Michael was not yet at the age to make vows of such importance. Still, Michael interrupted, I greatly desire to give myself entirely to Our Lady. If I consecrate myself to her, surely she will help me to keep my promise. Do this, suggested Don Bosco. Instead of a vow, make a simple promise to embrace the ecclesiastical state, provided clear signs of your vocation appear by the end of your Latin studies. Instead of the vow of chastity, promise the Lord never to do or say a word contrary to chastity. Every day invoke Our Lady with some special prayer that she may help you to keep this promise. Michael was pleased with that proposal. A few days later, Don Bosco gave him a note and said, read this and practice it. Michael opened the note, in which Don Bosco reminded him, St. Philip Neri gave young people five reminders to persevere in the virtue of purity. One, flee from bad company. Two, do not pamper the body with dainty food. Three, escape idleness. Four, offer frequent prayer. Five, go often to the sacraments, especially confession. What Don Bosco said briefly in the note, he extensively expounded to Michael at other times. He gave him these pieces of advice. Put yourself under the protection of Our Lady with childlike confidence. Trust and hope in her. Never have we heard of anyone who confidently appealed to Mary without being heard. She will be your defense in the assaults that the devil will make on you. When you're tempted, busy yourself with something. Idleness and modesty cannot live together. By avoiding idleness, you will also overcome temptations against purity. Kiss the miraculous medal and the crucifix often. Make the sign of the Holy Cross with lively faith, saying, Jesus, Joseph, Mary, help me to save my soul. These are the three most terrible and most formidable names to the devil. If temptation continues, turn to Mary with the prayer proposed to us by the Holy Church. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for me, a sinner. Do not pamper the body. Guard your senses, especially the eyes. Above all, avoid bad books. If a book, however innocent-seeming, upsets you, stop reading it. On the contrary, read good books, and among these give preference to those books that speak of the glories of Mary and the Blessed Sacrament. Flee bad companions. Choose good companions. Friends your superiors praise for their excellent conduct. With them, speak willingly and engage in recreation. Imitate them in speech, in the performance of duties, and especially in the practices of piety. Go to confession and communion as often as your confessor allows. If your duties permit, visit our Lord Jesus Christ in the Blessed Sacrament frequently. Don Bosco gave Michael these counsels continually, in public and private, verbally and in writing. He would add, Perhaps some may say that such practices of piety are too ordinary. But just as the splendor of the virtue we speak of can dim and be lost at every little breath of temptation, I judge that any smaller thing that helps to preserve virtue must be held in great esteem. For this, I propose easy things that neither frighten nor weary the faithful, especially the youth. 
Fasts, prolonged prayers, and similar rigid austerities can be mostly omitted, or they would be practiced with either pain or laxness. Let us keep to the easy things, but do them with perseverance. This path led Michael to a marvelous degree of perfection. It also made his charity toward his neighbor shine. He was always ready to write letters for those who needed to send them. He rendered his comrades any service in the dormitory and elsewhere. He swept floors, made beds, cleaned clothes, explained lessons they had not understood in school, consoled the downhearted, interceded with superiors, catechized outsiders, taught singing, willingly forgave any offense, and served the sick, even at night. Only God knows the evil he prevented and the good he caused. We need not linger on the specific details, but we will not omit an unpublished document so that it may be preserved. We can learn two beautiful facts from a letter that Michael's fellow disciple, Matthew Galliano, wrote to Don Bosco. Here's how Matthew expressed himself. He wrote, The first fact is that once Michael held a small candle, almost four fingers tall, and invited me to church to pray for the conversion of sinners. Moved by his gracious words, I complied. Entering the church, we went to the altar of Mary, where he lit that candle, and we recited the third part of the rosary. I was already tired of praying and disposed to leave when he kindly urged me to continue the prayer. We prayed until the entire candle burned down. The second fact is as follows. One Saturday evening, many artisans were gathered in the parlor after dinner. The bell for confessions had already rung, but they didn't want to go and were playing a game. When Michael came, he greeted one another with good manners. He urged them to go to confession and be reconciled to Jesus Christ, but all in vain. Then he very craftily played with them for a quarter of an hour and afterwards said to them, Come with me to the second floor. They all went with him, believing he intended to continue the game there. But being at the door of Don Bosco's room, he managed to talk them all into going to confession. The enchanting goodness of Michael and several of his companions flourished and bore luxurious fruit because of their obedience. They showed not only the precepts, but all of Don Bosco's advice. One evening, after walking through the porticos with a large group of boys for some time, Don Bosco felt tired and took them to the playground. He squatted on the ground and asked them to join him. Crouching down was uncomfortable, but no one stirred, afraid they would miss a word. Don Bosco spoke of the tremendous spiritual good that still needed to be done and its urgent need. Then, after saying that God wished the oratory boys to help in doing this good, he exclaimed, How much good could be done if I had ten or twelve good priests to send into the world? Who will volunteer? I will! I will! All cried together. Don Bosco smiled at their spirited response. You can see from these stories how a great saint will often cultivate an environment in which other saints can also flourish, as I believe is the case with Michael Magione. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to hear about the dream of St. John Bosco titled The Wheel of Fortune, just click on the video I've put at the top of the screen. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. You ready to go? Let's go. This video will cover two of the most incredible deathbed conversion stories from the life of St. John Bosco. 
you don't want to miss this episode. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. A government employee in Turin had taken part in enforcing laws against the rights of the church, and now this employee had become seriously ill. He had lived away from the sacraments for a long time, partly because he constantly read bad newspapers that helped stifle every feeling of faith in his heart. According to the attending physician, the pharmacist told the parish priest that this gentleman would not see the sunset the next day. The parish priest knew with certainty that the sick man didn't care about priests. Persuaded that he would be rejected, the pastor sent a message begging Don Bosco to try to save this poor soul. Don Bosco agreed. Upon entering that house, he was greeted by a young man who gave him a very warm welcome. He was one of the most faithful boys to attend the festive oratory of Valdoco, and he was the son of the sick man who loved him deeply. The boy was the source of all his good and happiness in this world. This man wasn't religious, but he allowed his son to influence him. The boy often gave him the crucifix to kiss. The father agreed to this, wanting to please the boy. His son sometimes said, Do you want me to get Don Bosco to come and bless you? The blessing does so much good and will make you well. The father always answered no, but with an attitude that the son didn't mind. Then he would mutter, how many superstitions these priests put in young people's heads. So when Don Bosco visited, the boy said, oh, Don Bosco, come, come, Papa is so ill. Is he? Don Bosco replied. Well, tell him, if you please, that I've come to visit him. Yes, Papa will be pleased, the boy exclaimed. And immediately he went into the bedroom. Papa, Papa, it's Don Bosco. Aren't you glad he's here? And without waiting for an answer, he ran back out to take Don Bosco by the hand, saying, Come, Papa is waiting for you. Come and give him a blessing. Don Bosco insisted that the boy inform him in a more satisfactory manner. Don Bosco especially wanted to ask the boy what his father had said to him, but the boy wouldn't let him speak, and he pushed Don Bosco into the room. His sick father gave Don Bosco a fiery look. However, the priest did not lose heart and thoughtfully asked the man, How are you? I'm as you see, replied the sick man dryly. Take courage, said Don Bosco. Your son, Albert, will pray for you, and I'll join him. Don Bosco, the man said in exasperation, I don't believe these stories. Don't even try to tell me about them. The son left the room, confused at how rudely his father had greeted Don Bosco. The servant of God, taking advantage of being alone, wasted no time, and continued by asking, Don't you believe in the power of the prayer of an innocent person? Besides, I didn't come here to disturb you. I found myself in the neighborhood, so I sought the honor of visiting you because of the high esteem in which I hold you. With his loving, witty manner, Don Bosco narrated some pleasant, contemporary stories. They fell into a conversation that delighted the poor sick man and somewhat soothed his frowning brow. As Don Bosco saw the man take an interest in that discussion, he suddenly said, Well, the hour is getting late, and I don't want to trouble you any longer. But before I leave, will you allow me to bless you? The gentleman answered him indifferently, Do what you like. Don Bosco then called the boy, Albert. 
The father asked him, Why did you call my son? I want him to say a Hail Mary with me for his good father, Don Bosco replied. Ah, he doesn't need to. Don't be inconvenienced, the man protested. But Don Bosco called the boy again. Albert! The little boy came, and Don Bosco said to him, Listen, Albert, let's say a Hail Mary for your father. He's very sick, and you need the Lord to preserve him for you. What would you do if the Lord were to fail you? You would be left alone, abandoned, without your father, your dearest friend and faithful counselor. How many occasions of evil? How many wicked companions? How many bad books would you encounter in the world, endangering your innocence? And no one would warn you or extend a helping hand. Your inexperience would lead you astray, poor Albert. And then, at the point of your death, how much remorse you would feel for not having had a guardian angel at your side. And how much remorse might you feel in eternity if you are divided forever from your father. Don Bosco expressed these and similar ideas in a few cautious and vivid words, but he spoke to the son so that the father might understand. Don Bosco then narrated the story of a poor sick man orphaned as a child. As Don Bosco recounted his biography, Albert wept. The father wanted to resist, but one could see that he was deeply moved. Don Bosco said, So let us get down on our knees and recite not just one, but three Hail Marys. Then he sent the young man into the hall and said to the sick man, Make the sign of the cross. The father made the sign of the cross with indifference, and Don Bosco gave him his blessing. Then the priest inquired about the man's studies and his positions. He asked him about his years of boyhood, youth, and adulthood. The sick man began to open up. Without letting the man see that he was learning about him, Don Bosco jested one moment and commiserated about human miseries the next. In the process, the priest drew from his lips just enough to know the complete state of his soul. Seeing the man tired, he said, Now, if you wish, I'll give you absolution. Absolution? The man scoffed. But to receive absolution, one must confess, and I don't want to confess. Don Bosco said, But you have. You've already confessed, and I have understood everything you've told me. And that's enough? That's enough, said Don Bosco. Make the act of contrition now. Is it possible? The man wondered. Yes, God forgives you everything. Don Bosco explained. He's so good and merciful to those who repent with a true repentance. The sick man then broke into sorrowful tears, exclaiming, Ah, oh, God is good indeed. He remained exhausted and uneasy. Seeing that in a few hours the man would die, as the doctor had said, Don Bosco hurried on. He questioned the man some more. Finding the man ready to do what the church required of him, Don Bosco offered him absolution. Finally, he promised the man that he would take care of Albert. Then he sent word to the parish priest of St. Augustine's to bring Holy Viaticum quickly. The parish priest wasted no time in coming. He also brought holy oil, but barely had time to administer extreme unction because the poor man was dying. By all accounts, the man died in the state of grace. But before we move on to the second story of a deathbed conversion, I'd just like to remind you that if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on the link that should appear above me on the screen. Now we continue with the final story.
On another occasion, Don Bosco was invited to visit Carmel's sick notary, a parishioner. Every effort the priests had made to lead him back to God had been useless. In the past, Don Bosco had also dealt with him. The man received the priest courteously, but coldly. As usual, Don Bosco was caring and asking for news of the patient's illness, affectionate in comforting him, and jovial in cheering him up with his conversation. The notary was enchanted. Don Bosco then began to hint at things of the soul, but the notary set him straight. Let us change the subject, he said to Don Bosco. You already know my beliefs. I'll never be persuaded to confess. And why is that? Don Bosco asked. Because I don't believe in things of religion. See those books I keep on the coffee table? The man explained. Don Bosco approached the coffee table and picked up one of the volumes, a book by Voltaire, the 18th century deist philosopher. What of it? He asked. The man said, anyone who agrees with that writer will never have the weakness to confess. You say it's a weakness to confess? Don Bosco asked. Did you know that this illustrious man, Voltaire, whose beliefs you say you share, wanted to make his confession at the point of his death? I can't believe that, the man scoffed. Don Bosco said it's true, and he would have confessed if his friends had not prevented him. Here Don Bosco told the notary about Voltaire's death and agony. The gentleman listened with growing interest and emotion. Don Bosco concluded, now I will tell you why I hope that Voltaire was saved. Is it even possible? exclaimed the sick man as a shiver shook him. Most possible, Don Bosco repeated. Holy Scripture describes only one man as damned to hell, Judas. The Lord didn't want us to know the eternal fate of others so that we might preserve the hope of their salvation. Is it even possible that Voltaire was saved? After all he said and wrote denying Catholic teachings, the man asked. Don Bosco assured him that God is so good and so merciful, my dear friend. One act of love and repentance is enough to erase any guilt. Voltaire could have been saved, the man exclaimed again. I have my opinion, and I believe that he was saved, Don Bosco insisted. For certain he was saved. What did he lack? He had the desire to confess, and his pain was excruciating. He was unfortunate only because he didn't have a priest nearby. If he turned away from despair and conceived an act of love of God, of true repentance, then I'm certain that his faith would have saved him. The man fell silent. After some thought, he exclaimed resolutely, I want to confess. Take those books away from me. I don't want them in my house anymore. Do with them whatever you will. He made his confession. At 8 p.m., he received the Holy Viaticum. At 10 o'clock, he was anointed with holy oil and offered the papal blessing. Finally, before midnight, he died with genuine faith, sorrow, and confidence, and charity, leaving everyone with the sweetest hope of his eternal health. Don Bosco returned to the oratory with a load of forbidden books, which he immediately threw into the fire. He told his young men, let us thank the Lord for everything. Don Bosco opened the gates of heaven as reasonably as he could, even to those who remained unrepentant. Bicio Giovanni served in Don Bosco's rooms from 1864 until 1871, and he affirmed, I can say that Don Bosco was called to the city many times to hear the confessions of sick and obstinate sinners. 
Whenever I questioned him upon his return to the oratory, his answer was always, well, that fellow confessed. Thank you all so much for watching this episode, and if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass Intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on the link that should appear right above me on the screen. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Welcome to our 100th episode, A Dream of St. John Bosco titled The Two Calms. You're watching The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima, I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Imagine you dream about a naval battle between two fleets, one of which is captained by the Pope. Two massive columns are the destination of the Pope's ship, and an enemy fleet is attempting to prevent it from reaching this safe haven. A massive battle ensues. This is the supernatural vision that God sent to Don Bosco in the form of a dream, which I will relate to you in this episode. On May 26, 1862, St. John Bosco had promised the boys that he would tell them something pleasant on the last or second to the last day of the month. And so, at the good night talk on May 30th, he narrated this parable, or allegory as he chose to call them. A few nights ago, he said, I had a dream that I would like to tell you about. It's true, dreams are nothing but dreams, but still, I'll tell them to you for your spiritual benefit. Try to picture yourselves with me on the seashore, or better still, on an outlying cliff. The vast expanse of water is covered with a formidable array of ships in battle formation, prows fitted with sharp, spear-like spars capable of breaking through any defense. All are heavily armed with cannons, incendiary bombs, firearms, and other explosives. They're all heading toward one stately ship, mightier than them all. As they close in, they try to ram it, set it on fire, and cripple it as much as possible. A flotilla escort shields this stately vessel, and the winds and waves are with the enemy. Amid this endless sea, two solid columns soar high into the sky a short distance apart. At the very top of one is a statue of the Immaculate Virgin, at whose feet a large inscription reads, Auxilium Christianorum, Help of Christians. On top of the other, far loftier and sturdier, supports a sacred host, proportional in size to the column, and bears beneath it the inscription, Salus Credentium, Salvation of Believers. The commander of the great ship is the Roman Pontiff. Seeing the enemy's fury and his auxiliary ship's grave predicament, he summons his captains to a conference. However, as they discuss their strategy, a furious storm breaks out, and they must return to their ships. When the storm abates, the Pope again summons his captains as the flagship continues. But the storm rages again, and standing at the helm, the Pope strains every muscle to steer his ship between the two calms, from whose tops hang many anchors, and strong hooks linked to chains. The enemy fleet closes in to intercept and sink the flagship at all costs. They bombard it with everything they have, incendiary bombs, firearms, cannons, and every imaginable explosive. Now the battle rages on even more furiously. Pointed iron prows ram the flagship repeatedly, but to no avail. 
Unscathed and undaunted, it keeps on its course. At times, a formidable ram splinters a gaping hole in its hull. However, a breeze from the two columns immediately seals the gash. Meanwhile, enemy cannons blow up, firearms break and fall to pieces, and ships crack in two and sink to the bottom of the ocean. In blind fury, the enemy resorts to hand-to-hand -to -hand combat, cursing and blaspheming. Suddenly, the Pope falls, seriously wounded. He is instantly helped up, but struck down again, then dies. A shout of victory rises from the enemy, and wild rejoicing sweeps their ships. But no sooner is the Pope dead than another one takes his place. The captains of the auxiliary ships elected him so quickly that the news of the Pope's death coincided with that of his successor's election. The enemy's self-assurance wanes pitifully as they feel victory slip through their fingers. Breaking through all resistance, the new Pope steers his ship safely between the columns and moors it to both of them, first to the one with the sacred host and then to the other that is topped by the statue of the Virgin. At this point, something unexpected happens. The enemy ships panic and disperse, colliding with and sinking each other. Some auxiliary ships, which had gallantly fought alongside their flagship, were the first to tie up at the two columns. Many others had fearfully kept far away from the fight, cautiously waiting until the wrecked enemy ships vanished under the waves. Then they too head for the two columns, tie up at the swinging hooks, and ride safely and tranquilly beside their flagship. A great calm now covers the sea. Father Rua asked Don Bosco, what do you make of this? He answered, I think that the flagship symbolizes the church commanded by the Pope. The ships represent mankind, and the sea is an image of the world. The flagship's defenders are the laity loyal to the church. The attackers are her enemies who strive with every weapon to destroy her. The two calms, I'd say, symbolize devotion to Mary and the Blessed Sacrament. Father Rua didn't mention the Pope who fell and died. Don Bosco kept silent on this point, simply adding, Very well, Father, except for one thing. The enemy ships symbolize persecutions. Extremely grave trials await the church. What we have suffered so far is almost nothing compared to what will happen. The enemies of the church are symbolized by the ships which attempt to sink the flagship. Only two things can save us in such a grave hour, devotion to Our Lady and frequent Holy Communion. Let's do our best to use these two means and encourage others to use them everywhere. Good night. Don Bosco stated that the enemy represents the heresies and persecutions against the Holy Roman Catholic and Apostolic Church. The auxiliary ships represent the faithful who fought to defend it. Some are strong, but many are weak with little faith, demonstrated by ships that waited for the enemy vessels to sink before approaching the two columns. We must pray that we have the strength to do everything in our power to defend the church and the papacy through rejecting all heresy. Avoid sin, amend your lives, pray the rosary daily, receive Holy Communion frequently, and, most importantly, have confidence in Our Lady. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Thank you all so much for watching our 100th episode, and if you think you may have missed one of our videos, just click on the playlist I put on the screen.
If you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on this other link. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Can you imagine attending a spiritual retreat given by a saint, like Don Bosco? It would be the chance of a lifetime. But consider the fact that there were many oratory boys that didn't take advantage of his presence and wise counsels, much like the three apostles who snored through our Lord's agony in the garden. He would ask the boys to thoroughly examine their consciences during these retreats, and they would lazily ask him to just read their souls instead, because they knew he could do it. God had to warn these hardened sinners through a mystical vision that he sent to Don Bosco, which involved demonic crows. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Don Bosco notified the boys that the spiritual retreat would begin in seven days. He said, to make a good retreat, you must prepare yourselves, and you must start to plan how to spend the retreat right now so that it's not over quickly without much impact. One of you will say, I want to spend the time sleeping. Another boy will say, I want to spend it reading amusing books and eating snacks. A third might say, I want to use the time to brush up on my grammar studies. Finally, a fourth boy will say, I want to bear fruit in holiness and think about my vocation. The fourth boy reasons like a wise man. What can we say about the others? What can we say to them? My dear boys, Always consider that this may be the last retreat you make in your life. Think about it. On April 11th, the retreat schedule was published, and our dear saint spent many hours in the confessional. Don Caliero tells us, Don Bosco's goodness with youngsters and adults was exceptional, constant, and admirable. Almost all of us confessed our sins to him because of his gentleness and patient charity. More forgiving than severe, he motivated us to trust in the Lord's forgiveness while he instilled a holy fear of God in our hearts. At this time, there was a young boy in the oratory who wanted nothing to do with sacraments or prayers. He was in the oratory by force, not because he wanted to be there. So one day, Don Bosco took him aside and said, Why do you always seem to be standing before an angry dog who is gnashing his teeth and always trying to bite you. I don't see him, the boy said. Well, I do. Tell me, how is your conscience? The young man lowered his head. Don Bosco said, come on, cheer up. We'll make everything all right. The poor fellow became a friend of Don Bosco and is now determined to do well. On the evening after the retreat, Don Bosco complained that some pupils had not used the retreat to improve the state of their souls. In these past days, he said, I saw the sins each of you have committed as clearly as if they were all written down. Some of you who confessed just wanted to list your sins without answering my questions. These questions were a grace that the Lord gave me for your sake. Some of you who ignored my questions and advice will ask if I can still read your conscience. No, I must answer you. You didn't participate then, and now it's too late for you to benefit. On April 14th, Don Bosco spoke to the students. He talked to the artisans the following evening. He described two dreams that he had before and after the retreat. 
It was Easter Saturday night, April 3rd, and in my dream I was standing on the balcony watching the young people having fun. Suddenly a large white sheet appeared and covered the whole courtyard. Then a significant number of crows came fluttering above the sheet, circling here and there. Finally they found the edge of the sheet. They passed underneath it and began pecking at the young men playing. They were plucking out eyes and ripping out and shredding tongues. They pecked the boys' foreheads and tried to tear out their hearts. The most astonishing part was that no one even shouted or complained. All remained numb and didn't try to defend themselves. So I asked myself, am I dreaming or am I awake? If I'm not dreaming, how on earth can these people allow themselves to be butchered without any cries of pain? After a while, I heard a general groan from the group of boys, and then I saw the wounded boys flailing, shouting, cackling, and going away from the others. Amazed, I wondered what this meant. Perhaps because it was the first Saturday after Easter, the Lord wanted to show us that he intends to cover all of us with his grace. Those crows must be demons assaulting the young people. While I was wondering about this, I heard a noise and I woke up. Already it was daylight, and someone had knocked on the door of my room. But imagine my surprise on Monday when the number of people receiving communion was considerably diminished. On Tuesday, there were even fewer. Then on Wednesday, the decreased number of people receiving communion was most notable. The congregation was so reduced that I finished hearing confessions by the middle of Mass. However, I didn't want to say anything. The retreat and spiritual exercises were approaching, so I hoped they would fix everything. Then yesterday, April 13th, I had another dream, and all day long I heard confessions. My mind was occupied with the souls of the youth, so in the evening I went to bed and fell asleep after a while. Then I dreamed I was on the balcony again, observing the young people playing once more. I saw all who the crows had wounded, and I watched them. Then someone appeared with a jar of ointment in his hand. He was accompanied by another person who carried a cloth to wipe with. These two went around dressing the wounds of the young men, who were healed as soon as the bomb touched them. But several turned away and didn't want to be healed. What displeased me most was that so many turned away. I took care to write their names down because I knew them all, but while I was writing I woke up and found myself without the paper. However, simply dreaming about their names imprinted them in my memory, and now I remember almost all of them. I might perhaps forget a few, but I think only a few. I shall directly speak to them, as I have already spoken to some, and I can try to persuade them to heal their wounds. Give what consideration to this dream what you will, but I say this, if you fully believe in it, it will do no harm to your soul. Don Bosco warned the boys to make a good resolution about how to spend their time on the Lenten retreat and what fruit to harvest from it. Then he shared two dreams. Those who used their retreat time poorly were punished because they lost grace, the grace they could have received if they had made good resolutions. These boys in the dream crawled away from those who had made good plans for their retreat. 
If you'd like to hear St. John Bosco's dream, The Two Columns, which prophesied persecutions of the Catholic Church, just click on the video I've put on the screen. Thank you all so much for watching. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. You may have heard of Victor Hugo, the author of numerous novels and plays such as The Hunchback of Notre Dame and Le Miserable. Although incredibly talented, he unfortunately was against any form of organized religion and promoted egalitarian worldviews. So it's very surprising that he went to great lengths to meet with St. John Bosco and ask him some questions, twice in his life. I'm sure you must be thinking, I would love to have been a fly on the wall for that conversation. Well, today, in watching this video, you can. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Don Bosco was visiting Paris in 1883 and said that, for the good of souls, I had to get involved in very many things, a hundred of which were so important that for any one of them, it would have been worth my while to undertake a trip to Paris. Just what day the first visit of Victor Hugo took place, we may never know, but we have an account of it from Don Bosco, which confirms its authenticity. One night, while in Paris, he was visiting a family and returned home after 11 o'clock, thoroughly exhausted. However, there were people waiting for him. Going up to his room, he did his best to convince those gentlemen that he was dead on his feet from tiredness, but they wouldn't listen. He exchanged a few passing words with each one, then, believing he was finally free, he opened the door of his room when suddenly, from a dark remote corner, stepped forth a specter. It was an elderly man who closely followed him into the room and sat by his side on the sofa. They talked, exchanged views, and argued until finally, dead tired, Don Bosco began to nod. His importunate visitor now and then tugged at his sleeve and kept saying, listen, listen. But Don Bosco, bowing his head, rested it upon the man's shoulder with not the least sign of paying him heed. The visitor didn't dare wake him, but sat stiffly erect until he himself fell asleep. Eventually, for some reason or another, he abruptly shifted his position, lost his balance, and fell upon the arm of the sofa. Don Bosco, losing his support, fell on top of him. Pardon, monsieur, pardon, they kept saying to each other, rubbing their eyes. That occurrence convinced the good gentleman that for Don Bosco, too, the night was made for sleep. Who was he? One of Don Bosco's listeners asked. Turning to his questioner, he replied with an air of indifference, a certain Victor Hugo. That was the first meeting, and there's no doubt that a second meeting took place at Autil in Father Roussel's orphanage on May 20th, 1883. Father Roussel told his friend, Mr. Boulet, to come with his little daughters to receive Don Bosco's blessing. Boulet arrived at about 4.30 in the afternoon and found the courtyard filled with people waiting for an audience. As he was going to Father Roussel's office, he saw the priest coming out with an elderly man, rather short in stature, with a thick white beard who made his way out through a lonely side street. Was that Victor Hugo who was just with you? Yes, said the priest, but hush, say nothing to anyone about it. He wanted to speak with Don Bosco and came to see him secretly in my house. He was drawn by the philanthropy of this apostle of youth. 
Some moments later, Mr. Boulay found the courage to ask Don Bosco, Father, you have just spoken with a very important person. Who told you? asked Don Bosco. Father Roussel. Well, in that case, I will say yes, I have. I've been speaking with Victor Hugo. He tells me he believes in spiritualism, but I believe that if he keeps on holding back, it's only because of human respect. His entourage, as he himself told me, is dead set against any concept of religion. Well, now he's old. We must take advantage of God's grace. I said that to him, too. An incident helps us understand Victor Hugo's reason for visiting our dear saint. Only recently he had been shaken to the very depths of his soul. On May 11th, after a prolonged agonizing illness, his life's companion, Julia Dorhant, died. The moral depression caused by the loss must have pushed him to speak to the priest whose wondrous deeds were being acclaimed by all Paris. Don Bosco kept that visit to himself until Victor Hugo's death, but the pagan irreligiousness of the funeral rites, which were staged as the epitome of the deceased, moved Don Bosco to reveal the sentiments which Victor Hugo had manifested to him. But before we get into the full account of the conversation, I'd like to invite you to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco by clicking on the link above me here. You don't have to become a monthly donor to have a Mass prayed for you, but if you do, you could receive an excellent book written by St. John Bosco like this one, Sacred History. Help me to keep these videos free from filthy YouTube ads and promote the message of St. John Bosco far and wide. And now I quote his full account of his conversation with Victor Hugo. Two years ago, he said, while staying in Paris, I received a visit from a celebrity who was a total stranger to me. He had been waiting three hours to see me, and at 11 in the evening, I received him in my room. His first words were, don't be alarmed, sir, but I'm an unbeliever, and hence put no faith in any of the miracles people say you work. I answered, I neither know nor ask to know with whom I'm speaking. I assure you, I neither wish to nor can make you believe what you don't want to believe. Nor do I intend to talk to you about religion, which you don't wish to hear about in any shape or form. But please tell me one thing. Have you lived all your life with these sentiments in your heart? In my early years, my beliefs were the same as my family's and friends. But once I was mature enough to mull over my tenets, I put religion aside and started to live as a philosopher. What does live as a philosopher mean to you? It means living a happy life with no thought of the supernatural or of a future life, which priests exploit to frighten simple folk and the poorly educated. And just what is your view of the future life? Don't waste your breath speaking to me about it. I talk about the future life when I find myself there. Well, I take it you're just quipping, but since you introduced this topic, Don Bosco said, please be kind enough to hear me out. Sometime in the future, might you not get sick? Oh yes, of course, all the more so at my age when I experience so many aches and pains. Well, could it not happen that these ailments of yours might bring you to the point of death? They could, since I cannot exempt myself from the common lot of mortals. And then, when you'll find yourself in grave danger of death, and will come to the point of passing from time into eternity, then I shall screw up my courage to be a philosopher, and banish all thought of the supernatural. 
And what prevents you, at least at that moment, from giving some thought to your immortality, to your soul, and to religion? Nothing. But it would be a sign of weakness, which I don't care to show, lest I become the laughingstock of my friends. But at that moment, you'll be at the end of your life. At such a time, it is smart to look after yourself and your peace of conscience. Yes, I understand what you mean, but I don't feel I can lower myself that much. Yet, at that moment, what else is there for you to hope for? Your present life is about to end, and you still refuse to hear a word about eternal life. So what will your future be? At this, he bowed his head and said nothing, lost in thought. I continued, you must give some thought to this daunting future. If while you still have a moment of life, you will take advantage of it and have recourse to religion and to the Lord's mercy, you'll be saved and saved forever. Otherwise, you'll die and die as an unbeliever, a reprobate, and all will be forever lost for you. To put it more bluntly, I tell you that you will have no other choice than non-existence, for such is your opinion, or an eternal punishment according to my personal and universal belief. Your words are neither philosophy nor theology, but the words of a friend, and I don't reject them. My friends and I often discuss philosophy, but we never address the great issue of what awaits us, either eternal suffering or non-existence. I want to have this matter thrashed out thoroughly, and then, if you will allow me, I shall come to see you again. After a few more words together, he shook my hand and, on leaving, gave me a calling card on which I spotted two words, Victor Hughes. Here, Don Bosco allowed the translation of the name for his English readers, but it was undoubtedly Victor Hugo. He came back the next night at the same hour. He took my hand and, holding it tightly, said to me, I'm not the type of person you probably thought I was. It was just a trick of mine. I made a real effort to play the part of an unbeliever. I am Victor Hugo, and I beg you to be my good friend. I believe in the supernatural. I believe in God, and I hope to die assisted by a Catholic priest who will commend my soul to my creator. Thus ends Don Bosco's testimony. We couldn't assert that the interview was unproductive. It's a well-founded opinion that, from that time on, Victor Hugo repeatedly made theistic declarations, but we also know that those around him did all they could to hush any such avowals. Victor Hugo said, undoubtedly with our dear saint in mind, the only true glory that never ends is the glory of the saints of the Catholic Church. In one or two thousand years from now, when all of us are forgotten, the church will still be celebrating Mass in their praise. Churchgoers worldwide will remember their existence, but we, we will disappear. True glory belongs to them. On the other hand, he left five sentences as his last will to be officially published. I leave 50,000 francs to the poor. I wish to be buried in their hearse. I refuse funeral orations from all churches. I ask for a prayer to all souls. I believe in God. Whether he converted to the Catholic Church in his heart and the agony of death is a mystery, the answer of which is known only to God. He died of pneumonia in 1885 without the sacraments, not because he refused them, but rather, it is said, because of the interference of those who attended him. 
Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass Intentions, just click on the link above me here. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. How do you emerge victorious from a battle against demonic temptations? God wanted to reveal the answer to this question by sending Don Bosco a supernatural dream in which he and his oratory boys were in an actual pitched battle with demons. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. On the Feast of Corpus Christi, June 30th, 1876, Don Bosco mounted the podium for his good night talk with the oratory boys. I'm happy to see you, he began. How many angelic faces I see turned toward me. Everyone laughed at that. I was afraid that I would frighten you by telling you this dream. If I had an angelic face, I would say, look at me, and all your fears would vanish. Unfortunately, I am but clay, the same as you. Nevertheless, we're made in God's likeness, and I can say with St. Paul that you're my joy and my crown. However, don't be surprised if you find a few rough edges in the crown. But let's get on to the dream. I was rather unwilling to tell you about it, lest it frighten you. But then I thought a father should keep no secrets from his children, especially if he feels they are concerned and should know what their father thinks and does. So I made up my mind to tell you the dream in every detail. I only beg you not to give it any more importance than you would any other dream. Choose what you like best, whatever helps you most. We all know that people are asleep when they dream. There was general laughter at that statement. But you must also know that I didn't have this dream last night. It came two weeks ago, as you were ending your spiritual retreat. I had long prayed to the Lord to show me my son's state of conscience, how they could be helped to grow stronger spiritually, and how certain bad habits could be uprooted from their hearts. This was my anxious concern, especially during this spiritual retreat. Thank God the retreat went very well for both students and artisans, but the Lord didn't end his mercy there. He chose to give me the privilege to read into the boys' consciences much as one would read a book. More astounding, I not only saw each one's present condition, but also whatever he would undergo in the future. This happened in a way which truly astonished me, because never before have I been enabled to see so well, so clearly, so openly into future events and into my boy's consciences. This was the first time. I had also prayed a great deal to the Blessed Virgin Mary that she would favor me by having none of you harbor a demon in his heart, and I trust that this request has also been granted, since I have reason to believe that you all opened your consciences to me. Well then, lost in these thoughts and pleading with the Lord to let me know what would be helpful and what would be harmful to my dear son's souls, I got into bed and my dream began. This preamble began with expressions of innate, deep humility, but ended with an assertion which precludes any doubt about the supernatural nature of the dream, which may well be entitled, Faith, Our Shield, and Our Victory. I seem to be at the oratory in the midst of my boys, my glory and my crown. 
It was evening. Dusk was just settling, so one could see but dimly. As I was walking from this portico toward the main gate, an unbelievably huge crowd of boys closed in about me, as you do because we're friends. Some had come to say hello, others to tell me something. Saying a word here and there, I slowly made my way to the center of the playground. Suddenly I heard moans and sobs, followed by a resounding roar with intermingling boyish screams and wild shrieks, which seemed to come from the main entrance. The students ran there to see what was happening, but almost immediately they ran back madly to us along with the terrified artisans. Many artisans had already fled from the gate to the other end of the playground. As the cries and howls of pain and hopelessness kept increasing, I anxiously asked what was happening and tried to shove forward to help, but the boys about me wouldn't let me. Let me go, I cried. Let me see what's happening to frighten everyone so. No, no, please don't go, they shouted. Stay away. There's a monster which will swallow you up. Run away with us. Don't go there. But I wanted to see, and shaking off the boys, I got close to the artisan's playground. Look out, the boys screamed. What's wrong, I asked them. Look, back there. I turned in the direction indicated and saw a horrid animal. At first I thought it was a giant lion, but it was nothing like an earthly lion. I gazed intently at it. It was monstrous. It looked like a bear, but seemed more ferocious and was far more terrifying. It had an undersized rump, but enormous shoulders and a huge belly. Overly large, too, was its head, with grotesquely cavernous jaws. They were open wide, ready to swallow a person at one bite. Its mouth sprouted two thick, long-pointed tusks shaped like sharp swords. I stepped back among the boys, who kept asking what they were to do, but I was frightened, too, and at a loss. "'I wish I could tell you,' I replied, "'but I don't know myself.' Just now, let's stay together under the porticos. No sooner had I said this than the bear stalked into the second playground and made its way toward us with a slow, heavy tread as though assured of its prey. We drew back in terror until we stood here under this portico, the boys clinging fast to me and all eyes centered on me. Tom Bosco, what should we do? They pleaded. I kept looking at them in silence, not knowing what action to take. Finally, I exclaimed, Let's turn back to the farther end of the portico where Our Lady's statue stands. Let's kneel and pray more fervently than ever so that she may tell us what to do and what kind of a monster this is, and so that she might rescue us. If it's just a wild animal of some kind, we shall manage to kill it somehow. If it's a demon, Mary will come to our aid. Don't be afraid. Our Heavenly Mother will see to our safety. Meanwhile, the beast kept up its slow approach, belly close to the ground, crouching and preparing to spring and seize us. We fell to our knees in prayer. It was a moment of utter helplessness. The huge monster had gotten so close that in one leap it could be upon us. Then, all at once, I don't know how or when, we found ourselves on the other side of the wall in the cleric's dining room. In the center, I could see Our Lady. I'm not sure, but she looked like the statue we have here in the portico, or the one in the dining room itself, or 
Maybe like the statue atop the dome or the one inside the church. But be as it may, there she stood, aglow with a brilliance which blazed through the dining room, now grown a hundred times in breadth and height. She shone like the sun at midday, thronged by saints and angels. The dining room seemed like heaven. Her lips moved as though she wished to say something to us. We were a countless crowd in that dining hall. Astonishment had replaced terror in our hearts. The eyes of all were upon the Madonna. Don't be afraid, she assured us in the gentlest of tones. My divine son is just testing you. I looked carefully at the persons, brilliant in glory, who surrounded the Blessed Virgin and recognized Father Alessonati, Father Rufino, a certain brother Michael of the Christian schools, whom some of you knew, and my own brother Joseph. I saw others, too, who had once attended our oratory or belonged to our congregation and are now in heaven. In their company I also saw several others who are living today. Suddenly, one of those about the Blessed Virgin loudly announced, Surgamus, let us rise. Since we were already standing, we couldn't understand his command. Why Surgamos? We're already on our feet. Surgamos, he repeated in stentorian tones. The boys looked at me, thoroughly surprised and still waiting for directions because they had no idea of what to do. I turned toward the one who had given the command and asked, What do you want us to do? What does Sorgamos mean, since we're already on our feet? Sorgamos, he again ordered in a stronger tone. The order made no sense to me. It was incomprehensible. As I was standing on a table for better control of the crowd, one of those who thronged around the Blessed Virgin addressed me in a wondrously powerful voice. The boys listened intently as he said to me, you are a priest and should understand what this sorgamus means. When you offer Holy Mass, do you not say sursum corda, lift up your hearts, every day? Are you speaking about the physical act of standing up? Don't you mean instead the uplifting of the hearts to love of God? Turning to the boys, I instantly shouted, Up, up with your hearts, my sons. Let us strengthen our faith and raise our hearts to God. Let us make an act of love and repentance. Let us earnestly strive to pray with lively fervor. Let us trust in God. I gave a sign, and we all knelt down. Moments later, as we softly prayed in an outburst of confidence, we again heard a voice ordering, Surgite! Rise! Leaping to our feet, we all felt that we were being lifted from the ground by some kind of supernatural power. How high, I can't say, but I know that we were all raised quite a distance above the ground. I have no idea what supported us. I do recall that I held fast to the sill or frame of a window. All the boys were clinging to windows or doors, one gripping here and one there, some holding on to iron bars or stout spikes, some others to the cornices of the ceiling. We were all just hanging in the air and I wondered that none of us fell to the floor. Then, behold, the monster we had seen in the playground stormed into the dining room, followed by a vast herd of other wild animals. They stomped about the dining hall, growling frightfully, straining for combat, and ready to pounce upon us at any moment. If you'd like to hear about the pitched battle between St. John Bosco and these demons, please come back Wednesday. Thank you all so much for listening. 
God bless you and Our Lady keep you. This is part two of Don Bosco's dream, The Monster on the Playground. Click on the card above me if you haven't seen part one yet. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. The monster stomped about the dining hall, growling frightfully, straining for combat, and ready to pounce upon us at any moment. But though they kept eyeing us, staring with bloodshot eyes and tossing their heads, they didn't immediately attack us. We looked down on them from above. Clinging for life to that window, I thought were I to fall, how horribly they would tear me to shreds. Caught as we were in these strange positions, we heard Our Lady sing out the words of St. Paul, Sumite ergo scutum fidei inexpugnabile. Take up, therefore, the impregnable shield of faith. So harmonious was the sound, so full, so sublimely melodious, that we listened ecstatically. Every note could be heard from the lowest to the highest, and we thought that a hundred voices had blended into one. Intent upon this heavenly song, we noticed a number of graceful young lads who had descended from heaven on wings leaving Our Lady's side and drawing near to us. They bore shields in their hands and put one up against the heart of each boy. They were large shields, sparkling in beauty and reflecting the light which shone from the Madonna. It was a heavenly sight. Each shield seemed to have a steel center surrounded by a large ring of diamonds, and the whole shield was edged in purest gold. It was all one could hope for in beauty, sweetness, and melody. As I gazed about me, lost in the music, I was startled by a booming voice which cried, Ad pugnum! to arms. Then the wild beasts began stomping about furiously. In a flash, we all found ourselves on the floor, each one on his feet, each engaged in deadly combat with those monsters, protected only by our divine shields. I can't say whether the struggle took place inside the dining hall or out in the playground. The heavenly choir didn't interrupt its singing. The monsters rushed at us as smoke streamed from their gaping mouths, along with leaden balls, spears, arrows, and weapons of all kinds. But these weapons either missed us or hit our shields and bounced off, our adversaries were bent on wounding and slaughtering us, and they kept hurling themselves against us, but all in vain. Meeting us head-on, they smashed their fangs and were forced to flee. In waves, these hordes of frightful monsters assailed us, but all met with the same fate. It was a lengthy battle, but finally we heard Our Lady saying, Ec est victoria vestra que vincit mundum fides vestra. This is the victory that overcomes the world, your faith. At her voice, the entire herd of frightened beasts balked and, dashing headlong, disappeared, leaving us safe, free, victorious in that immense dining hall, still ablaze with the brilliance emanating from the Madonna. Then I carefully studied the faces of those who bore the shields, they were an immense number. Among others, I could see Father Alessonati, Father Rufino, 
my brother Joseph, and the Christian brother who had fought by our side. But the boys couldn't take their eyes away from the Blessed Virgin. She was chanting a canticle of thanksgiving which gladdened us with a new joy and an ecstasy beyond words. I doubt that a lovelier canticle can be heard in heaven itself. Suddenly our happiness was rudely broken by blood-curdling shrieks and cries intermingled with bellowing roars. Were some of our boys being torn to pieces by the wild beasts which had fled the scene but moments before? I immediately tried to rush out and help these sons, but I couldn't because the boys kept restraining me and firmly refused to let me out of the room. I struggled to free myself. Let me go to help those poor boys, I begged. I want to see them. If they're hurt or killed, I want to die with them. I must go, even if it costs me my life. Tearing myself from those who were holding me, I dashed out to the portico. Oh, what horror. The playground was strewn with the dead, the dying, and the wounded. Boys, panicking with fear, tried to flee in all directions, only to be pursued by those monsters which pounced on them, sinking their fangs into their arms and legs, tearing them to pieces. Every second, some boys fell to the ground and died amid horrifying screams. But the beast that wrought the most fearful slaughter of all was the bear which had first appeared in the artisan's playground. With its sword-sharp tusks, it pierced the boys' chests from first the right side to the left and then from left to right. The victims fell tragically dead with a double mortal wound through the heart. With determination, I shouted, Courage, my dear sons! Immediately, many lads ran to me for protection, but they were pursued by that awful bear. Summoning up my courage, I stepped forward in its path, joined by some of the boys who had already conquered the beasts in the dining room. That prince of darkness flung itself upon us, but couldn't hurt us because of our shields. In fact, it couldn't even touch us because the very sight of the shields forced it to back away in terror and even homage. Then it was that as I fixed my gaze on the two sword-sharp tusks, I noticed one word on each in big letters. Otium, idleness, on one, gula, gluttony, on the other. In utter surprise, I kept asking myself, is it possible that here, where everyone is so busy and we don't know where to begin doing all the work we have to do, there's still someone who idles away his time? As for the boys, I think they keep busy with their work, study, and play. It made no sense to me. Then someone said, and yet how many half hours they waste. But gluttony too, I asked. Here at the oratory, one couldn't indulge in gluttony if he wanted to. There's hardly ever a chance. Our food is most ordinary, and so is what we drink. We barely have just what we need. I wasn't convinced at all, and I wanted a better explanation. While the dining hall was still bright with the Blessed Virgin's presence, I went very sadly to Brother Michael to clear up my doubts. My friend, he answered, you're still a novice in these things. I'll teach you. As regards to gluttony, you must learn that one can be intemperate by eating, drinking, or sleeping more than one needs, and by pampering the body in other ways. As for idleness, you must know that it doesn't just mean being lazy. 
It also means letting one's fantasy run on to dangerous thoughts. One can also be idle during study periods by fooling around and disturbing others, by wasting time in silly reading, or by being slothful, especially in church. Idleness is the father, the font, and source of many temptations and of evils. You who are these boys' director must safeguard them from these two sins by striving to strengthen their faith. If you can manage to make your boys temperate in the little things I have mentioned, they will always overcome the devil. Through temperance, they will grow in humility, chastity, and other virtues as well. If they will properly use their time, they will never fall into the clutches of the infernal enemy, but will live and die as saintly Christians. I thanked him for his instructions, and then, wanting to verify the reality of all this, lest it be a mere dream, I tried to grasp his hand, but touched nothing. Again and again I tried, but failed. I grasped nothing but air. Yet I could see those people. They were talking and seemed real. I approached Father Alessonati, Father Rufino, and my brother, but once more I grasped nothing. Beside myself, I cried out, Is this all true or not? Aren't these all real people? Didn't I hear them talk? Brother Michael replied, After all your studies, you should know that as long as my soul is separated from my body, it's useless to try to touch me. You can't touch a pure spirit. We take on our former likenesses only to enable mortal eyes to see us. But when we shall all have risen at the last judgment, then we shall put on our bodies immortal and spiritualized. Then I tried to draw close to Our Lady, who seemed to have something to tell me. I was almost beside her when I heard a new uproar and more shrieks from outside. I immediately dashed out of the dining hall again, but as I did so, I awoke. To conclude his account, Don Bosco added these reflections and suggestions. Whatever this mixed-up dream may mean, it does restate and explain St. Paul's words. However, I was so worn out and exhausted by the strain of this dream that I begged the Lord never to send me any more dreams like it. But, wouldn't you know it, the following night, that very same dream came back. Only this time I had to see it to the end, something I was spared of the night before. I was so frightened that I screamed. Father Berto heard me, and in the morning he asked me why I had shrieked and if I had passed a sleepless night. These dreams drained me far more than if I were to spend the night at my desk. As I said, this is only a dream. I don't want you to give it any more importance. Think of it only as a dream, no more. I wouldn't like you to write home about it or tell outsiders who know nothing of the oratory, lest they say, as they have already, that Don Bosco fills his boys with dreams. I don't really mind, though. Let them say what they will, but let each of us draw from this dream whatever applies. Just now, I will not give you any explanations because all of you can easily understand the dream. I only recommend very strongly that you revive your faith, which is safeguarded particularly by being temperate and avoiding idleness. Let temperance be a friend, and sloth an enemy. Some other evening I will return to this subject. For now, good night.
Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to hear about how St. John Bosco tried to convert Victor Hugo, the famous author, just click on the video above me here. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Throughout his entire life, St. John Bosco was blessed with a photographic memory. In fact, when he was a young man in high school, he could finish his studies with astonishing speed, so he had much free time left over to devote to saving souls. He met a young Jew named Jonah in a bookstore, and they became fast friends. In this episode, we'll discuss the young saint's efforts to convert the Jewish boy despite getting violently chewed out by his mother. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. About this period in his life, Don Bosco writes, Anyone who saw me spend my time so frivolously might imagine that I neglected my studies. I don't deny that I could have studied more, but I can honestly say that all I had to do to learn was to pay attention in the classroom. Furthermore, I made no distinction then between reading and studying because I was able to recite with ease anything that I had read or had heard read. Since my mother had trained me to sleep only a few hours, I was able to spend two-thirds of my nights reading by the light of my little oil lamp. Thus, I was free to give almost the entire day to doing what I wanted, such as tutoring, often out of charity or friendship, although several students did pay me. At that time, there was a Jewish bookseller in Chieti called Elias, whom I met when I subscribed to the loan of a series of Italian classics. I paid him a soldo for every book that I borrowed. I read the whole series at the rate of one a day. I spent my whole fourth year of high school reading Italian authors and my year of rhetoric studying Latin classics, from Cornelius Nepos to Cicero, Horace, and others. I read them for pleasure, and I enjoyed them as if I really understood them. I discovered only later that I had not thoroughly enjoyed them. For when I became a priest and began to explain those famous classics to others, I realized that it was possible to grasp their true meaning and beauty only after much study and preparation. All in all, my studies, the private lessons I gave, and my reading filled the greater part of my days and my nights. It often happened that when it was time to get up, I was still holding a volume of Livy's History of Rome, which I had begun to read the evening before. This so undermined my health that for years I felt I was close to death. Thereafter, I always advised young people to do only what they could and no more. Night is meant for rest. Except in cases of necessity, no one should do serious study after supper. A strong man may keep it up for a while, but it will always have some ill effect on his health. John's amazing memory was undoubtedly a special gift of God. He didn't let it wilt, but improved it further by constant practice. He committed the books he read to memory from the first to the last line instead of studying only the main points. He concentrated particularly upon books presenting difficulties either because of the language, such as Latin and Greek, or because of their complicated sentence structure and obscure meanings. His memory didn't deteriorate with age either. Two months before his death, Don Bosco was riding in a carriage with Father Rua and his secretary. The discussion turned to certain passages of Bible history which Metastasio had taken as the basis for one of his plays. 
Don Bosco immediately began to repeat whole scenes from this writer's work with great feeling. He didn't make a single slip. He hadn't read Metastasio since his school days. During his third year of high school, while at Pianta's Cafe, John had become friends with a young Jew named Jonah, a very handsome lad about 18 years old. He had a remarkably fine singing voice and was a skilled billiard player. He had first met John in Elias' bookstore. Whenever Jonah went there, the first thing he did was to ask for John, who was very fond of him and to whom Jonah was deeply attached. He spent every spare moment with his friend, either singing, playing the piano in the billiard room, or reading. He liked to listen to the many tales and stories John told. One day, the young Jew got involved in an argument and a fight which threatened to have serious consequences. As soon as he could, he rushed to John for advice. John told him, well, if you were a Christian, Jonah, my friend, I would take you to confession at once, but you can't do that. He got offended at that and said, but we too can go to confession if we want to. Well, you may go to confession, but your confessor isn't bound to secrecy. Neither can he absolve you of your sins or administer any sacrament to you. Well, said Jonah after some thought, if you'll take me to a priest, I'll make my confession to him. Well, I could do that, but only after much preparation. What kind of preparation? Well, confession remits sins that are committed after baptism. So to receive any sacrament, you must first be baptized. Okay, what should I do to be baptized? You have to take instruction in the Christian religion and believe in Jesus Christ, true God and true man. After that, you can be baptized. What would I gain by being baptized? Asked Jonah. Baptism removes original sin and also your own sins. It enables you to receive all the other sacraments and makes you a child of God and heir to the kingdom of heaven, replied John. Well, can't we Jews be saved? Asked Jonah. No, my dear Jonah. Since the coming of Jesus Christ, Jews can't be saved unless they believe in him. Well, if my mother should ever learn that I want to become a Christian, God help me, said Jonah. Don't be afraid, replied John. God is master of all hearts. If he wants you to become a Christian, he'll see to it that your mother will agree to it, or in some way or other will help you save your soul. Jonah thought for a moment. What would you do if you were I, John? I would begin by taking instruction in the Christian religion, said John. Meanwhile, God will smooth the way for what you must do later. Take the catechism and start learning it. Pray God to help you find the truth. From that day on, Jonah was drawn to the Christian faith. He would go to the cafe, and after a game of billiards, he would look for John to talk about religion and all the things he was learning in the catechism. He was very happy, and his behavior improved every day. Now, Jonah's father had died when he was a child. His mother, Rachel, had heard some vague rumors to the effect that her son might want to change his religion. She had nothing definite to go on until one day, while making his bed, she found the catechism that the boy had forgotten under the mattress. She screamed in horror and indignation and took the catechism to the rabbi. Immediately, she suspected John Bosco because her son had mentioned him quite often, and she hurriedly went to look for him. But before we hear about Don Bosco's encounter with her, 
I'd like to invite you to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco. It's a beautiful Mass set in the traditional Byzantine rite, and you can enroll by clicking on the link in the description below, or you can wait till the end of the video and click on the logo that appears on the screen. Jonah's mother was a frightening person. In fact, her own people called her the witch because of her looks. So you can understand how startled John must have been at her sudden appearance. Before he could recover, the woman spoke up angrily, I know it's all your fault. You've ruined my son Jonah. Yes, you. You've ruined his reputation. God knows what will become of him. I'm so afraid he'll end up as a Christian and all because of you. John, who had never met his friend's mother, guessed who she was and what she was talking about. He replied quietly that she ought to be glad and grateful for the good he had done for her son. What good are you talking about? What's so good about making one give up his own religion? Calm down, my good lady, John said, and listen to me. I didn't go looking for your son, Jonah. We met by accident in Elias's bookstore. We became friends for no particular reason at all. He's very fond of me, and I'm very, very fond of him. As a true friend, I want his soul to be saved, and I want him to come to know the only faith in which he can be saved. Yes, it's true that I gave him a book to read, but I told him only to study our religion. I also told him that if he became a Christian, he wouldn't abandon his Jewish faith, but perfect it. If by misfortune he were to become a Christian, he would have to forsake our prophets, because Christians don't believe in Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or Moses, and all the prophets. On the contrary, replied John, we believe in all the holy patriarchs and all the prophets of the Bible. Their writings, their words, and their prophecies are the very foundation of the Christian faith. If our rabbi were here, he'd know how to answer you. I don't know either the Mishnah or the Gemara. Oh, what will happen to my poor Jonah? With this, she left. It would take too long to describe the aggravation John had to endure, or the way poor Jonah was repeatedly attacked by his fierce mother. But the courageous boy accepted it and continued to study the faith. Since he was no longer safe in his own home, he had to move and live almost like a beggar. Many people came to his aid, however. To be sure that everything was done properly, John asked a learned priest to look after his friend. As soon as he was properly instructed, Jonah was baptized with great solemnity, thus setting a fine example for the whole of Kieti, as well as for many other Jews who later embraced Christianity. A kind couple were his godparents and gave all possible assistance to the convert, who soon after was able to earn an honest living. He led a truly Christian life under the name of Lewis and always remained grateful and devoted to John Bosco, whom he visited frequently at the oratory all the way up to the year 1880. Such were the first fruits of John's apostolate, the first of innumerable heavenly graces. As the apostle St. James says, My brethren, if any one of you strays from the truth and someone brings him back, he ought to know that he who causes a sinner to be brought back from his misguided way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on the link I've put on the screen. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you.
Don Bosco's good clerics, especially the upperclassmen, tried unsuccessfully to get a picture of him. The good saint's features always turned out altered and unrecognizable. They even took him to a professional photographer, but he couldn't succeed, although Don Bosco was, outwardly at least, cooperative. It was very odd. One day, when this was mentioned in his presence, he remarked, If taking my picture would help souls, I would be all for it. Otherwise, I don't see the need for it. Souls were all he cared for. Now, if that's all true, then how do I have a picture of him on my desk? Watch till the end to hear the answer to one of the strangest mysteries in the history of photography. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Father Rufino was kind enough to chronicle their many attempts to photograph Don Bosco, whether successful or unsuccessful. He writes, May 19, 1861. Today, Pentecost Sunday, Francis Serra, an oratory boy, took a picture of Don Bosco, first alone, then in a group with over 50 pupils around him. Here, instead of using the word picture, Father Rufino used the word for the earliest form of photography, a daguerreotype. Two days later, he photographed him again in the act of hearing confessions. The closest penitents were Joseph Reano, Paul Albera, and Charles Viale. Many others stood in the background, preparing themselves. Don Bosco had consented only after Serra's endless entreaties. These photographs, however, were strictly for the oratory, and Don Bosco forbade the making of other prints. Bartholomew Bellicio copied them in pencil sketches. Photographing Don Bosco was marked by interesting and surprising particulars, which provided the boys with some subject matter for conversation and amusement. Father John Bonetti was told that on this occasion, Don Bosco, ignoring all pleas, firmly refused to have his picture taken. At this point, the cleric John Caliero, a senior student then, went down on his knees before him and begged him on behalf of all to do them this favor. He told Don Bosco that all would feel terribly disappointed at not having his picture if he should die. Don Bosco relented, but before posing, he said to Serra, I want you to know that I have already yielded three or four times to the insistent pleas of several families in turn and allowed myself to be photographed, but no picture has ever yet been satisfactory. Recently, I went with several boys to Mr. Dubois, the best photographer in town. Both he and his assistants took pictures, but in vain. They were embarrassed, since such a thing had never before happened to them. I laughed and said, My friends, I'll tell you something. If you want to take my picture, you must first make a good confession. Otherwise, you'll never succeed. They thought I was joking and laughed. Yet, after more than an hour of vain attempts, they had to give up. Therefore, I tell you the same thing. If you are in God's grace, go ahead. If not, you'll only be wasting your time. Said I got to work and took one picture, but it didn't turn out very well. The second and third were excellent. At this, the boys all shouted, Seda is in God's grace! Seda is in God's grace! On one occasion, when Don Bosco was photographed with a crowd of boys, he told them, Those with a muddled conscience had better hide, or they will turn out ugly. 
Thus, even while joking, Don Bosco strove to impress on his pupils' minds the grave misfortune of being in the state of sin, which disfigures the soul even when it dwells in a handsome body. At about this time, Father Rufino wrote, he briefly narrated this dream. Now, this has nothing to do with the pictures, but I just had to tell you about it. Don Bosco said, I seemed to be with a few boys in a meadow at Castelnuovo discussing what gift to send Pope Pius IX on the feast day of his namesake. Suddenly, from the direction of Utuliera, we saw a gigantic pine, unbelievably large and tall, sail horizontally through the air toward us. Then it straightened itself vertically, reeled, and seemed about to crash on us. In terror, we blessed ourselves and were about to flee for safety when abruptly a withering wind arose, totally disintegrating the tree amid thunder, lightning, and hail. Shortly afterward, another pine, not quite as large, came sailing through the air in the same way and from the same direction until it hovered over us. Then it began to float down. In a state of panic and fearful of being crushed to death, we dashed off again repeatedly making the sign of the cross. The tree dropped close to the ground and then rested in midair, its branches just brushing the ground. As we gazed, a light breeze stirred and dissolved the pine into rain. Unable to grasp the significance of this, we were all distraught when someone whose identity I still remember said, Ec est pluvia quam dabit Deus tempore suo. This is the rain which God will give in due time. Someone else, whose identity I no longer remember, added, Ic est pinus, et ornandum locum habitationis mei. This is the pine which will bring beauty to my dwelling. He even gave the scriptural reference, but I can't remember it. I believe that the first pine stood for the persecutions and storms which afflicted those who were faithful to the church whereas the second symbolized the church herself, which will descend like a refreshing rain upon them. That was the end of his dream, and to the Salesian's knowledge, Don Bosco didn't elaborate on it anymore. Without searching for other possible interpretations, we shall venture a comparison. This colossal pine, no less than 330 feet in diameter and hovering erect above the earth, recalls to our minds the tree seen by Nebuchadnezzar and described by Daniel. Its top reached to the skies, and its far-flung, thickly-leaved branches made it look like a forest from a distance. It symbolized overpowering might, proud defiance, rebellion against God, and extermination of his servants. And yet, annihilated by God's wrath, it vanished from the earth. A blistering, violent wind withered its branches, a storm battered it about, and fire consumed it to ashes. The second pine, lofty and hardy, though not quite as huge as the former, symbolized perhaps not so much the church in general as some choice segment of the church, such as a religious congregation, the Society of St. Francis de Sales, for example. This is suggested by the location of the dream which was Castelnuovo. The horizontal rather than vertical position of the pine was symbolic of humility, and by the scriptural verse, the glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to bring beauty to my sanctuary and glory to the place where I set my feet. 
Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to hear the story of how a very young Don Bosco converted a Jewish boy through his brilliant explanations of our Catholic faith, just click on the video above me here. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. This is one of the only attempts on St. John Bosco's life in which the assassins actually drew blood. But it wasn't the Masons this time. It was a heretical group called the Waldensians, who we've already heard about in a previous episode. Their gangster methods of intimidation, threats, and violent attacks in this account sound like they could have given Al Capone a run for his money. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima, I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I'm just going to briefly outline the tenets of the Waldensians so that you have a profile of the assassins in this episode. They rejected most of the seven sacraments. The confession of sins didn't require a priest, in their opinion, and baptism wasn't administered to infants, but they waited till the person was much older. They denied the doctrine of transubstantiation, virginity of Our Lady, the notion of purgatory and of prayers offered for the dead. The Waldensians attempted to engage Don Bosco in debate several times, as he himself said. He wrote, In 1852, a well-known Waldensian minister came to the oratory. After introducing himself, he showed me a book saying, Here, the infamies of the Catholic Church are fully exposed. It was a book by C. L. Trivier abounding in lies and calumnies. When I asked him to cite me a few of the alleged infamies, he answered, Isn't it an infamy for the Pope to demand worship as if he were God or even greater? Isn't it an infamy to adore saints and images? Isn't it an infamy to forbid people to read the gospel? On hearing these wild accusations, I calmly asked him to show me any decree of either Pope, Bishop, Council, or Father of the Church wherein even a single phrase sanctioned any such abuse. After all, the burden of proof rested with him, the accuser. He turned over page after page, scanning the chapters and paragraphs, but he couldn't find what he wanted. Finally, he said, I'll come back with all the necessary proof and documentation. Please do, I told him, and take all the time you need. If you can prove what you assert, I shall believe you. Otherwise, otherwise what? Otherwise, I shall have every good reason to say that Waldensians are liars. The minister left. I waited for him to return, but I never saw him again. However, Don Bosco wasn't satisfied with merely confounding someone in a dispute. Pondering over the unjust methods, slanders, and iniquitous distortions of demagogues, revolutionaries, and Waldensians in their smear campaign against the teachings and the rights of the Catholic Church, he conceived new undertakings, even greater than those already launched, and whose wholesome influence would gradually amaze the world. As early as 1850, Don Bosco had planned to stem the rising tide of heretical publications with a series of popular booklets entitled Lecture Catholice, Catholic Readings. The site of the headquarters of this new publication was to be in Turin, However, Don Bosco was not in a position to shoulder the burden and responsibilities of an enterprise of this magnitude all by himself. He had to find other people with similar interests in such a venture. In 1850, Don Bosco had already discussed with Bishop Luis Moreno of Ivrea this publishing venture, 
whose aim was to openly counteract Waldensian propaganda. Bishop Moreno now approved Don Bosco's plan enthusiastically and became his most powerful and zealous ally. The publication was very successful, and it wasn't long before two ruffians came to the oratory to warn Don Bosco to stop publishing Lechore Catolice. They offered him 4,000 lire as a bribe and said there was more where that came from if he would only publish books they commissioned and stop Lechore Catolice. Of course, Don Bosco politely but flatly refused. Gentlemen, he said, I get your message clearly, but let me tell you quite frankly that when truth is at stake, I fear no one. I became a priest to serve my church and save souls, particularly the souls of the young. I started Lechore Catolice for this very reason, and I intend to continue this publication and do everything in my power to enhance its popularity. Well, at this point, one of them said, you're making a terrible mistake. This thought was echoed by his friend as they both stood up. The facade of their fine manners had completely disappeared. Yes, a terrible mistake, the minister repeated. Your refusal is an insult. Aren't you afraid of what could happen to you? When you leave this room, can you count on returning? These words were uttered in such threatening tones that the boys on guard outside, fearing for Don Bosco's safety, rattled the doorknob to make it perfectly clear that there were people around. In no way alarmed, Don Bosco replied, Obviously, you gentlemen don't know Catholic priests too well. You might as well learn this now. As long as we live, we priests are happy to work for God. If we should die while carrying out our duties, we would regard such a death as our greatest fortune and glory. Spare yourselves the trouble of threatening me. Don't make yourselves look ridiculous. These courageous words so enraged the two visitors that they moved threateningly toward him. Don Bosco then grabbed his chair and added, If I cared to use force, I would make you pay dearly, but I won't. A priest shows his strength in being patient and forgiving. You've said enough. You better go now. As he spoke, he moved toward the door and opened it, still holding the chair partly in front of him like a shield. Joseph Buzzetti was standing by. Please show these two gentlemen to the gate, he said. They don't know their way too well. The two men exchanged glances and then muttered, We'll see you again. These words and their none too subtle threats during their conversation form just a single link in a long chain of vicious attempts on Don Bosco's life. Heretics and cutthroats seem to have joined together in a vast conspiracy against him. Since these attacks were so numerous and almost unfailingly well-planned, we have no hesitancy in declaring that divine providence must have shielded him and he remained mostly unscathed. The Waldensian assassins only drew blood on one occasion. It was on a quiet Sunday evening when Don Bosco was summoned to hear the confession of a woman who was deathly sick. She lived almost opposite the refugio in a house owned by a man named Sardi. In view of his previous experiences, Don Bosco prudently summoned two husky and courageous young men to accompany him. There's no need to bring them along, said the man who had called him. I'll escort you both ways. At these words, Don Bosco became all the more suspicious. Instead of taking two boys, he decided to take four. 
Two of them, Hyacinth Arnaud and James Ciarutti, were so muscular and strong that they could have felled an ox. The other two were Ribaldi and Joseph Puzzetti. When they reached their destination, Don Bosco told the latter two to wait at the foot of the stairs and took Arnaud and Ciarutti with him to the second floor, instructing them to wait on the landing outside the sick woman's room. When he entered, he saw a bedridden woman gasping for breath and four men sitting close to her. She acted out her role so well that it really looked as though she were about to draw her last breath. As Don Bosco asked the four men to leave the room so that he might minister in privacy to the patient, the woman interrupted him, shouting, Before I make my confession, I want that villain over there to retract the slanderous things he has said about me. As she said this, she pointed to a man opposite her. I won't retract a single word, he answered, standing up. Let's not get excited, broke in another, shut up, you scoundrel, or I'll choke you. This exchange, interwoven with several unprintable imprecations, created a terrible din in that small room. All of them were now on their feet. In the midst of the uproar, the lamps were extinguished. Then the din suddenly ceased, and a veritable hailstorm of blows from clubs were directed at the spot where Don Bosco was standing. He immediately knew he had been tricked again. To defend himself, he grabbed the chair near the bed. He held it upside down over his head, and protected by this improvised shield, tried to get out of the room while murderous blows were crashing down noisily upon the chair. When he reached the door, he found it locked. Using his extraordinary strength, he twisted and tore the lock away with one hand, just as the two boys on guard outside were ramming into the door with their shoulders and flinging it open. Arnaud was the first to enter. He grabbed Don Bosco by the arm and pulled him outside. Don Bosco was grateful that both his head and shoulders were unharmed. However, one of the cudgels had grazed his left hand, injuring his thumb. His hand was dripping with blood, much to the concern of the oratory boys. The nail was completely ripped off, and the bone was so badly bruised that the scar was visible even 30 years later. But even still, after being attacked by four men with cudgels in a dark room, that's all they could do? You have to remember that Don Bosco has been shot at point blank, attacked with knives and every manner of blunt instrument, and the most his enemies can do is hurt his left thumb? That's the protection of God, for sure. But anyway, to finish the story, once safely outside, Don Bosco urged his boys not to mention the incident at all to anyone, adding, let us forgive them and pray that they may see the light. Such poor wretches need our prayers, for they are enemies of religion. If you'd like to hear about other attempts on Don Bosco's life, just click on the playlist I put on the screen. Thank you all so much for watching. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you.